Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, check out our current effort focused on anxiety and depression. We're looking to uh, gather about 5,000 different sources, try to make a guide that will show every possible treatment for anxiety and depression for sufferers or for people that know that people are suffering. So if you want to find out more about that, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest is Holly Barker, PhD. Uh, she's a Stafford Fox Centenary Fellow of Rare Cancer Biology and Genomics over there in Australia. Australia. So we're going to talk about her work. So Holly, thanks for coming. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. Well, tell me your, uh, about your, your work. Why have you worked in cancer and for how long? And then I want to ask you about your current research. So I started working in cancer 2002, I think it was. Um, I was doing a genetics major in my science degree and found that there was a breast cancer project for honours. And so I decided to do that. I had experienced a little bit of cancer, not not personally, but a friend of mine had had cancer when I was young and that had really affected me. And so I saw this, this cancer pro, uh, project come up and thought I would take that on and never thought that I would actually work in a lab. I, um, yeah, I just hadn't seen myself in that position. And when I started working in a lab, I absolutely loved it. I just was there all the time. I just found it fascinating. I loved finding new things and and finding things that other people didn't know. And the fact that I was learning about cancer and how cancer develops and trying to find ways that we can stop it, stop it from growing and stop it from spreading. And so, yeah, I went on to do my PhD, which I also never thought that I would have done. And now here I am 20 years later, still working in the cancer field. And you said uh, you work on rare cancers. Why rare ones instead of uh, super common ones? I think that sort of came about, I went over to London for eight years to do a couple of postdocs and I worked in different areas. So I kept working in breast cancer, which is what I had done for my PhD. And I'd done, and I'd worked in um, 
primary cancers and also looked at how the cancers spread. So it looked at things outside the cells, so the extracellular matrix. And then I moved on to radiotherapy and how these affected head head and neck cancers, how we could use radiotherapy to treat head and neck cancers and understand more about head and neck cancers and drugs that would make radiotherapy work better. So I'd had a wide range of experience in London from different types of cancers and outside the cell, inside the cell, drugs, therapies, things like that. So um, I was looking to come back to Australia and I wanted a really translational project, a really translational career where I could work on drugs that might actually help patients directly. This program, I noticed the rare cancer program and, and you sort of need a lot of different skills because to study these rare cancers, we we don't really understand them. They're, they've been understudied until this point. And so I had all these different skills from different um, working in different postdocs in London and also from my but, PhD. Um, do you feel like if, if that all cancers share enough commonalities that if you figure out something with a particular rare cancer that it's going to translate to other cancers? Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point. So that's what we're finding out now. So when you put all rare cancers together, they actually account for about a fifth, one in five people who develop cancer will develop a rare cancer, but actually about a third of people who develop cancer will die from a rare cancer. And that number is increasing every year because we're understanding cancers better and we're studying them. We're um, studying the molecular profile of these cancers and splitting them into smaller and smaller groups that the way we're studying rare cancers now, I believe will be applied to all cancers in the future as all cancers will eventually become rare in that. So the rare cancer is um, uh, has an incidence of less than six people in 100,000 each year. And I think as we divide more common cancers into smaller and smaller subgroups, they will all become rare. So how we're studying these cancers will become important for all cancers. I mean, if, if they're rare, wouldn't it be hard for you to get funding or, you know, I guess selfishly when people say, look, I don't want to deal with rare ones. It's more important to, to deal with the ones that affect a lot of people. Do you ever receive that pushback or, you know, yeah, people so are that's, understanding? That's a really good point. Yeah, we do. We, we When we apply for funding, we have to sort of show what we're studying in the rare cancer could be applicable to more common cancers. So we might be looking at a specific biological function or a drug that may work in other cancers against a specific biological function that we're finding in the rare cancers. So we sort of, I mean, the rare cancers have a worse prognosis than more common cancers. So that sort of helps a little bit with the funding because they people do want to fund poor prognosis can- cancers with a worse prognos- prognosis. And, and things are changing now the way we're doing trials and things like that. So obviously rare cancers have been underrepresented in clinical trials previously because you just can't get enough people to go into a trial. Why are rare cancers, it seems like on average, more deadly than, you know, common cancers? What is it about them that you think that causes that? Well, there's a number of reasons why they might be have a worse prognosis and that's um, they're either misdiagnosed because they haven't been seen before. They're, um, are, they, are they more aggressive than normal cancers or no? Not necessarily. I think it's more that they're, yeah, like I said, they're misdiagnosed and there aren't drugs that are specific for those rare cancers. So normally if a rare cancer with a rare pathology, so a rare cancer can be defined as something that is has developed from a rare cell that doesn't normally form a cancer, or it might be a has a common pathology but has a rare mutation in that common pathology, or it might be a more common cell that's developed into a rare pathology. So there's sort of three ways you can get a rare cancer. And you might have a cancer in your ovary, for instance, that has a rare pathology that has not been seen very often, but you just get treated with, because there's no drugs 
that have been tested and there's no evidence that these drugs work in those cancers. You just get treated based on the location of your tumour. So it's in the ovary, okay, we'll give you drugs that other ovarian cancers and these drugs don't work on these rare pathologies. They don't work as well. So that's one reason they have a worse prognosis. And then also there is there are the lack of drugs that are available because as I said, rare cancers aren't really included in clinical trials up until now. And so we haven't tested these drugs in those patients. And so they're not allowed to, they're not available to these patients in the clinic. What are some examples of the rare cancers that uh, are of particular interest to you? Or is it just, if it's rare, then it's of interest? Or are there certain ones that interest you for certain reasons? And um, so we have, so we consent anybody with a rare cancer into our program, the Stafford Fox uh, Rare Cancer Program. And we, but we have predominant gynecological cancer focus because uh, 50% of gynecological cancers are actually classified as rare. And the lead for the program, Professor Claire Scott, she's a gynecological oncologist. So she sees that she, that's her connections are a lot of gynecological clinicians. And we have a lot of those patients in the program. But as I said, we can send anybody with a rare cancer to the program. So yeah, but our focus is ovarian and endometrial and cervical cancers. So why do you think that some of these particular cancers are rare? And other ones are very common. Like why? Like what, what's I don't know. I guess prostate, breast cancer, maybe are some of the most common. Like what's the difference between like what's the incidence of let's say the common cancers versus the rare ones? And why do you think some are common and some are rare? I think it's just down to where they're being located and when the type of cell that's developed and that they just don't form as often. So like I said, less than six people in a hundred thousand in a year will have that's the incidence less than that, that's classified as a rare cancer. So they just don't, perhaps that's a cell that doesn't easily mutate. Perhaps it's not proliferating as much as the other cells, like in the breast or in the prostate. And we just haven't seen so many cancers in that, that look like that in that particular organ. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. But what are, what are some of the other commonalities? Like uh, how many, I don't know if you know, but how many rare cancer types are there? And, you know, has anyone done kind of a meta-analysis to look and see if there are any commonalities in a, you know, a cluster of like 30 or 50 rare type cancers? So we have about, there should be about 200. I mean, as I said, that's increasing as we understand as we're studying cancers more, but there's about 200 different types of rare cancer. We've actually consented patients with about 120 of those different rare cancer types into our program. Some of those we have, some of our gynecological cases, we have maybe 40 or 50 patients with that type of rare cancer, which is, was actually actually quite a big number considering they're rare cancers. Um, and then obviously some other cases, we only have one or two um, of that type of rare cancer. We also have patients with uh, multiple cancers. So six or seven, up to six or seven instances of primary cancer over their lifetime. Um, and they will have one rare cancer and then other more common cancers. Um, and we're sort of seeing patterns in cancers that arise together. Oh, and, like what? What do you notice? 
Uh, it's a yeah, it's a really interesting um, program, the multiple primary program. Um, we've noticed that patients that have often breast cancer arises with other cancers, so um, they'll often have a breast cancer first, or um, it arises later, or maybe thyroid cancer. And we are really interested in this this project because we've noticed that people who actually get three or more cancers have a similar similar survival to the normal population, normal as in those who never get cancer, whereas a patient who only gets a single primary cancer has a much worse prognosis. So we're really interested in what is it in this these multiple primary patients that means that they're surviving longer or that they're being I I'm they're being diagnosed when their cancer, which should be aggressive in somebody else, is not very aggressive and hasn't yet spread around the body and they're able to treat really well and then they get another cancer later on. It's a really interesting project, that one. So when you say someone has multiple primaries, do they have it all at once or they'll have a particular cancer and then a few years later they get another one and another one? Yeah, exactly. So there's normally a few years, um, one or two years or so more than six months between primary cancers and they're known to be individual primary cancers. It's not a metastasis from the original primary cancer. So the the pathological assessment is that it's a new primary um, and treated as such. Um, And some of these, yeah, some of these patients are remarkable. They've got six six primary cancers over 40 years and they're still, still going on. Do these patients receive standard of care or do they receive different care and uh, I guess these guys, they, they're lucky and unlucky at the same time, right? They're lucky, I guess, in that they beat cancer multiple times, but they're unlucky in that they keep getting it. Yes, I know. So it's there's sort of two sides to the project. And why do they keep getting, the, why are they predetermined to get these extra cancers? And and why is it better that once you've got one, you want to get two more because that you have a better survival? There's something in your body that is keeping the cancer in check. And we are, we are identifying the, so we're looking at the mutation in general and to see if there's any mutations that predetermine them having more cancers or then looking at the mutations in the cancers to see if we can see any commonalities between the patients that may enable us to develop a cancer vaccine for instance where we can again um, are are these people getting standard of care or are they tending to do other types of therapies instead yeah, so they so they are getting standard of care, but they often don't need as an aggressive form of treatment because their cancer, for whatever reason, is not as aggressive as it normally would be. So it hasn't spread anywhere. So, so one of our patients only needed to have surgery for a number of her for a number of her cancers. She didn't need to follow up with chemo or radiotherapy, um, and she's still alive. You know, many years later, she's uh, eighty two now. So yeah, she's very lucky. Uh, very lucky, you know. Are you lucky you've had six cancers, or I'd say lucky, lucky, lucky but yeah. unlucky. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting. Weird. Yeah. And what else do you notice about these people? So they they tend not to have standard of care each time, or at least all the times. I mean, because it seems like you know chemo and radiation and surgery and all that really beat you down, especially chemo. So yeah. I, I would think it would be hard for someone to survive, you know, not only one round or two, but five, six rounds over different cancers. You know? If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, so I think well, often you would develop resistance to a type of treatment. So the next you would need to try a different treatment the next time if the cancer came back. So either they're able to respond immediately, like respond completely to that first treatment, meaning that they don't need those multiple rounds of different chemo after or they don't develop resistance to that drug and you can use it again. And so, so yeah, like I said, we don't need to have as an aggressive treatment. Most often there doesn't seem to be the need for as an aggressive treatment plan for these patients. So I guess they're, 
yeah, they're able to live their life, yeah, in a better way. But they're not like Rasputins where they just won't, nothing can kill them. They're just not, it's not that they're particularly hardy individuals and no matter what you do to them, they're okay. It's that they just, they actually tend not to have the full treatment and maybe that's why they're able to, you know, fight these cancers and have it again and again and again, but yet keep surviving. Yeah, so there's something in their immune immune system that yeah is protecting them or in the other microenvironment around the tumor that is protecting the the tumor or protecting it from spreading and enabling and enabling them to survive yeah it's really well has has anyone um consented them i mean you don't know i guess at the time that they're going to have multiple cancers but you know could could some of these patients volunteer and be like all right I'll let you guys store biopsies of every cancer I've had so you can study them and look for commonalities or differences in a two, you know, like if, if someone has breast cancer and they store it again, all their tumor material and you compared it histologically to other people that have breast cancer that was far worse, maybe you'd see yeah. again differences in their tumors and the mutations and the structure, or I don't know, who knows, the epigenetics. Yeah, that's what we have. That's what we do in the program is we collect all of the tumors from our patients. So we've got over... Okay. 500 tumors so far collected and we also collect blood samples from the patients so that we've got viable immune cells stored from each patient that match the tumor and we so we may get fresh tissue if we're lucky if they're close enough so this this program is around the whole of australia so we may get samples from around australia viable samples but we also get formal and fixed blocks of um, tumors and we're able to do sequencing on both those types of tumors we can do depending on the quality of the tissue we can um, sequence them by different methods and find the mutations that are in these these so the the changes in the dna that are in these tumors and then identify there's specific programs that you can look at to work out which bits of that protein that mutated protein will be um, presented on the surface of the cell that are then recognized by the immune system so we can look at yeah, common things between these patients. I think we have like 40 or 50 of these multiple primary patients in the in the program. And we've also got a cohort from other areas in Australia, larger cohorts. So we've got quite a big number now that we can study to look at the commonalities between the tumours and between the patients and then what exactly would the immune system be seeing and potentially develop a cancer vaccine in that in that respect, which would be very exciting. Okay, so that was kind of odd. What would a cancer vaccine look like? And how would you know that it would work on multiple types of cancer? Yeah, so I don't know. We need to find something that is common to all of those cancers, which... I don't know if that's what if that's going to be possible or not. If we can, I mean, you've seen how quickly I was just thinking the other day how quickly we have developed these vaccines to COVID. And in science, things that I used to do in my PhD just 20 years ago, people laugh at now because it's so basic and you just wouldn't do it anymore. And things that used to take a year now take a day. And so, yeah, I guess it's feasible that we could develop a vaccine to a, an individual in some point, in some point in time in the future with how things are rapidly changing in science and how quickly we're able to um, improve the technology these days to, to more rapidly like the sequencing, for instance, it would take you forever just to sequence one gene. And now we sequence the whole genome in a day or less than a day. And then obviously it takes longer to analyze what's in there, but it's quite amazing. So who knows if we'll be able to develop these things in the future. So you haven't yet been able to look at all these samples to determine the commonalities or differences yet? No, it's an ongoing project. Yeah, to look at 
So our program started in 2016. So we've been developing different projects as we as we go along. So heavily involved in a couple of ovarian and endometrial projects. And this multiple primary project is really just taking off now. So we've got some other projects that are a little bit further advanced with looking for new treatments for those types of rare cancers and understanding the biology of those types of rare cancers. But this one's, yeah, very early in, in the early stages. Just, just noticing are there any that, are there any hints on what you're seeing yet or or what no not, no hints yet on what's making these people have more cancers than normal apart from you know the the typical muta- the typical familial cancer genes like BRCA and things like that obviously if you have a germline mutation in a BRCA gene you're more predisposed to cancer but that's only occurring in a few cases so and then other other predisposition genes but um yeah there's nothing really yet it's like like I said we're in our second year for this project so it's um yeah very early stages but very exciting just noticing that these patients live longer than live live the same length of time as someone who hasn't had cancer is just a really interesting finding that we're yeah, really keen to work out why. Well, why not look for uh, an immune type therapy instead of, uh, you know, trying to give someone a vaccine? Why not that path? Why not rely um, on their so, immune system to actually help them? Yeah, so we do have those. It's like we, when, like I say, we sequence most of our tumors that come in and we look for clinic ac- actionable aberrations in these tumors. So, so like I was saying before, like the typical way of doing clinical trials is that people are, are, are grouped based on their type of tumor. But now we're expanding to things called basket trials where patients are uh, selected into a trial based on the mutation that is in their their tumour. So there might be a number of different types of tumour in one arm of the trial, but they all have the same genetic mutation, which is thought to be the driver of that that tumour. And so they're treated with a drug that targets that specific mutation. And we've noticed in rare cancers that rare cancer is more likely to have a driver mutation and more common cancers have a lot of other concurrent mutations, so it's hard to sort of see which one is the driver of the tumour. And so we've found that in our program, at least, about 50% of our cases have an actionable aberration, whether we're actually able to gain access to a drug for those for those patients or actually it will work. So unfortunately, in Australia, we don't seem to have as many clinical trials for a lot of these new agents like you do in America. Um, so it's hard for us to actually put the patients on these trials, but we have found about 50% of patients in our rare cancer program do have an actionable aberration that we can, so that we can improve their treatment options, hopefully in the future. Yeah, but if Um, if tumors and cancer, all you hear is heterogeneity over and over and over. Why would you think that one mutation would do anything? It seems like a whole cascade of them. And then in response to standard of care, you know, the mutations seem to actually proliferate. So, I mean, it seems like that's the current model that countless clinical trials have gone through is looking for one molecule, one pathway, one one substance, and it just doesn't seem to be uh, going anywhere over the past 70 years. So why would that be a, a way to go forward? Yeah, so I realized I didn't answer your question before about immunotherapy. So that's one thing that we find in our um, patients with a high tumor mutational burden that they will, which is like you're saying, they do have lots of mutations. So that's where we harness the immune system by treating them with immunotherapy to, because they've got a lot more mutations in their tumor. They have, they induce a bigger immune response 
um, because of yeah, so many foreign things flowing around, floating around in the body. And so immunotherapy works well in those patients that have a lot of mutations. Um, but with respect to rare cancers, having more likely to have a cleaner genetic background, this is because it is a rare cell that's, you know, uh, like I said, there's three ways of getting a rare cancer. It might be a rare cell in the beginning that was mutated. And so um, a single mutation, we've, we've just seen that these a single mutation that's driving this tumour in a more clean genetic background um, without so many um, mutations that you see in other cancers in more common cancers. Um, it just seems to be something that we've noticed. And so we feel that's why we're finding more things that we can target. Like I said, we need the clinical trials to be able to see if this is true, that this will actually help these patients. But they do seem to have a more, more actionable aberrations that are obvious in their tumours compared to the more common cancers. Hmm. All right, very good. Um, what's the best way for people to keep tabs on your work and at what point do you think that you're going to have some uh, some new data that'll be really interesting to talk about? Um, well, so we've got we've got a paper in the pipeline at the moment. It's already published on bioarchives because we that, that seems to be a thing you do these days is pop your information on bioarchives, and we were trying to put it out there for for the on the basis of a clinical trial that we're trying to develop, and that's um, in a rare type of ovarian cancer called ovarian carcinosarcoma. And we've we've found that a treatment, um, a microtubule inhibitor called a ribulin, is really really works well in these tumors better than any other treatment. So these tumors are normally treated similar to the more common ovarian cancer, high-grade serous ovarian cancer, and um, but they just don't have as, as good a response and there's no second-line treatments for these tumours. Like I said, they haven't really been studied much before, so there's just no evidence-based treatment options. And so based on the molecular profile of these tumours, we were interested in microtubule inhibitors and ribulin. Um, so the interesting thing with these tumours is they've got both carcinoma and sarcoma. So carcinoma arises from epithelial cells and sarcoma is arising from mesenchymal cells. And so they have this sort of mesenchymal characteristics and arubulin, this microtubule inhibitor, seems to reverse mesenchymal characteristics. So we were thinking if we could turn the mesenchymal cells back towards the more carcinoma cell, um, they may then respond better to the original treatment that the other ovarian cancers, which are just carcinoma, respond to. And so that's sort of hopefully be published very soon, this research looking at and looking at why aribulin has an effect in these tumours. So we've found a novel mechanism of aribulin, which I can't talk about, which is really exciting. And the company ESI, which aribulin, who own aribulin, they're very interested to see this sort of new function that we've identified in these tumours. And it seems to be quite specific to these tumours, but it's a very interesting mechanism of, of drugs. And at the same time, we're with these tumours, we're um, developing, so we always develop preclinical models in our program for all of our rare cancers. So we develop different types of models. And one of the types of models that I'm sort of focusing on are organoids, which I'm sure, you, well, hopefully you've heard about, but they're basically little mini tumours that grow in a dish. So we can just rapidly grow lots and lots and lots of mini tumours in a dish. So they're better than a cell line, which is just one type of cell. They're all the different types of cells that you might find in the body, including all of the stromal cells. So that, and we grow them in a 3D matrix. So they're more similar to what you see in the, in the body. And we can put these in 384 well plates or even smaller and treat them with heaps of drugs 
different drugs all at the same time in different wells, obviously, and really rapidly see how we get responses to specific types of drugs. And so we're screening these organoid models now, um, and that's another way to identify new treatments, and then maybe these will inform our clinical well, yeah, one uh, one important thing to consider about organoids, I, I interviewed a company probably maybe two years ago now, and they were working on drugs that, um, you know, they I, I think they had like a liver organoid um, and the drug seemed to be okay in the liver organoid, but then they got a kidney organoid and hooked the two together in a reciprocal okay. fashion. And they found that the liver changed the drug to a compound that then created toxicity in the kidney. Yeah. So when doing organoid studies, if possible, uh, the more organoids that you can kind of link up uh, will show you the, the true effects of a drug where if you just have a single organ organoid, you may miss that. You may miss uh, cardiotoxicity or kidney toxicity, yeah. et cetera. So. Yeah. We, there's all these, also these things called organs on a chip and they enable you to see how a drug may be toxic in the body. So yeah, you can then model specific bodily responses to specific drugs on a chip as well. We don't have any of those. Yeah, they're they're a new thing in the technology as well. Oh, we can talk talk about about that in America. It's up to you. Yeah, I mean, you can, you know, you can talk about it. It's up to you. If that's what's going on, I mean, describe it. If not, it's okay. It's up to you. Because yeah, that's another way, I guess. So we also develop these things called patient-derived xenograft models at the same time. So a little piece of tumour will go into a mice and be propagated in a number of mice. And so we're able to treat the drugs, the treat the tumours in those ways and see um, a response that you would see in a human body in the mouse. And so we've seen, so one of our cases, one of our cases was a lady who was, a 50-year-old lady who was uh, really unwell. She was she had a collapsed lung because she'd had so many treatments. She has uterine leiomyosarcoma, and she'd had a number of different treatments, and she was progressing And because she had all this uh, fluid in her body. That's why her lung had collapsed, and she really wasn't going to make it. She was in the hospital really unwell, and we were able to take her tumour and um, grow these patient-derived xenograft models and organoid models and test um, and also do sequencing at the same time. And the sequencing came back and found that she had a BRCA2 deletion, the deletion of the BRCA2 gene. And these, the, this isn't normally found in uterine leiomyosarcoma. ULMS is how we call it, much easier. And um, we were able to put her on PARP inhibitors. So BRCA2 is a protein really important for one type of DNA repair. And PARP is a a molecule important for another type of DNA repair. So very simplistically, if you treat treat tumors that can't repair their DNA in one way with a drug that prevents them repairing it in another way, they die. And so these tumors respond well to PARP inhibitor and, and, and she did really well to PARP inhibitor. So based on the sequencing results, we gave her PARP inhibitor and she became really well, um, completely lost, her tumor disappeared and um, she went back to work and she was, yeah, it was an amazing response considering she was almost going to die. And then she um, did progress a little while later. They thought, well, cisplatin is another, is a chemotherapy that also works well with these tumors. So they put her and they'd seen, 
not these tumours, sorry, but tumours that have BRCA2 deletions, not ULMS. It hasn't been, normally a ULMS would never get cisplatin, but based on what we've seen in other, in ovarian cancers, they will respond to cisplatin if they have a BRCA2 mutation. And so they tried cisplatin with the PARP inhibitor because these two can work together without being too toxic. And um, at the same time, we were doing this in the clinic and in our lab with the patient drives in graft models, and we noticed a complete regression of our tumour. And similar in the patient, she also had a complete regression of her tumour and she's now completely disease-free. And this was just incredible from a patient who was really, really unwell. So they're the kinds of things that we're doing in the program that keep me coming back to work every day, seeing these responses. Um, we've had similar responses in other types of cancers as well with other, other women with nasty gynecological cancers that really had no other options. And through our molecular profiling and development of preclinical models, um, at the moment we don't have ethics to inform our results to the clinic what we find in our preclinical models, but in parallel, we do find the same things. Um, so we hope we're trying to amend our ethics now so that we are able to actually inform the clinicians what we're finding in the lab, in our organoids, in our patient drives, in the graft models with these um, combinations of treatments to hopefully improve more lives. What do you mean update your ethics? You're not allowed to disclose what you're finding or what do you mean? It's not allowed to inform patient treatments at the moment. So. Our molecular, our molecular analysis is, obviously, we, we tell people what the molecular profile of their tumour is, what mutations they have and what drugs they may respond to. That's a big part of our program. Every week we sit down and pour over, our, the, pour over the data from our tumours and look at what mutations are there and at what frequencies and what they're likely to have. So at the same time, we may have transcriptomic data, so gene expression as well as our mutations, so we can see that if the mutations actually caused a change in the gene expression so we can match all that together and it's um it's actually a really good part of my week sitting down and pouring over all this genetic data and figuring out which ones actually may have caused this cancer to occur or spread and see if there's clinical trials that are available for targeted therapies for those mutations and so we can inform that to the clinician and we have like I said, this lady got um, got compassionate access for the PARP inhibitor because we now have a program with AstraZeneca to get um, compassionate as access to PARP inhibitor in these ULMS patients. We're all we're looking for BRCA mutations in all of them now that come into our program. Um, so that can help patients. And there was another um, cervical cancer patient who cervical cancer would normally never be tested for HER2 positivity, but this cervical cancer patient had high expression of HER2. The also a breast cancer gene, which you've probably heard of before, for Herceptin. And Herceptin is a good, good drug for these tumours that have high expression of HER2. And she went on to a trial for HER2 targeted therapy and has had a brilliant response as well. Um, so, yeah, these things will, have, will be informed to the clinician and we just hope that in the future our um, preclinical studies in the organoids and the patient-derived xenografts will also be able to be informative for patient treatments. Well, very good. Holly, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and keep tabs? Where can they go? So we run the Stafford Fox Rare Cancer Program through the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, where I work, the WEHI. Um, we call it the WEHI now, which is great, rather than the long name. And um, so you can find us on there, or you can just look for the Stafford Fox Rare Cancer Program, look for Professor Claire Scott or me, and you can find... Okay, well, very good. Well, Holly, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. If you like this podcast, 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.